Well, it's an exciting story, the story of the Acts of the Apostles, as Paul goes from place to place preaching the gospel. And uh, as you've already heard, we've now reached, or reach, Paul is reaching today, Corinth. And we're going to just think about that, and we've been talking about the geography and the um, climate in uh, Corinth. I didn't go into a lot of detail with the, the, the boys and girls, and you can read it up yourself as easily as uh, I can tell you. But, of course, it meant that Corinth was a very corrupt city. Because of all these religions and all these people just coming and going and so on. And there were, of course, no organized police to deal with, keep things in, under control. The Roman authorities tried to keep peace and did keep peace in most places. But... As we've read in our scripture reading, they were not concerned with the details as long as they could keep peace, etc. So the city became a very corrupt place. And the Jewish leaders, um, we often are down on the Jewish leaders, but the Jewish leaders <clears throat> in many places were able to bring some stability and some sense of uh, decorum to some places because they did believe in a law. They did believe that there was right and wrong. And uh, we sometimes forget that they did some good things as well as things that we would not agree with. But now we're reaching Corinth. And I want to talk for a little while about um, this passage. It's one, uh, uh, Acts 18, page 1114 in the Church Bibles. And so Paul goes to Corinth. <clears throat> Let's start with a little bit about the background. The background is, of course, that as you heard last week, Graham shared with us about Paul in Athens. It's about 50 miles away, 45 miles away. And uh, he went to Athens, and that was a very different culture indeed. And he spoke in, in uh, Athens, as we heard, with great eloquence and insight, and it was a very polished performance in many ways. And we looked at it last week. He spoke both philosophically and culturally appropriately for the people that were there. But it does appear there was not a great deal of fruit in Athens. Graham mentioned this. He spoke about their altars, worshipping different gods, about their poets, their religions, and so on. Some people have said that that means that uh, Paul, when he left that, he didn't achieve very much because he was talking about all those things. But he didn't, and that he didn't, doesn't even mention in Acts 17, doesn't mention specifically, doesn't mention Jesus once in the whole sermon. Well, that may be so in our Acts of the Apostles, the word Jesus is not mentioned, but it does speak about the resurrection, so you could hardly speak about the resurrection without the death of Jesus. So, and there's a lot more, of course, behind the scenes here. But it is, what it points out for us is he was in a completely different culture an educated Gentile culture in Athens when he was preaching. But it does appear that uh, certainly at that time, though there may have been later, at that time there was no church planted as far as, we can, as far as we can tell. It does say that a few became believers, while others mocked and said to Paul, we will hear you again on this subject when he preached. The fact that it doesn't mention that a church was planted at Athens doesn't mean that there wasn't one. Graham pointed that out for us. There are quite a number of places where we know there were churches which are not mentioned in Acts. There's not only Athens, but there's Colossae, Laodicea, Crete, Syria, and so on. But it does mean that it was a different background, a different culture 
as far as the proclamation of the gospel is concerned. Interestingly, Paul, writing back to the church uh, later on, describes Corinth, not uh, Athens, describes Corinth as the first fruits of his ministry in Asia. Whether it's because there was not a great deal of fruit in Athens or not, but he says that Stephanus, who was converted at Corinth, he says he was the first of the converts in Asia and he was from Corinth in Achaia. Now that's not to criticize Paul at all. He was a completely different culture, Athens, and uh, if there was not a lot of fruit, it was perhaps much more to do with the Athenians than it was to do with Paul's ministry. But that's not the end of the story. Paul now comes on to Corinth itself. And uh, we don't know what was in Paul's mind other than what's recorded for us in Scripture. Um, But I do think that sometimes Paul may have been a little nervous about going to Corinth uh, because he'd had a rough time in most places. And uh, he wrote this to the Corinthians. He says, when I came to you, that is to you Corinthians, when I came to you, I did not come with much eloquence and with Uh, with with eloquence and with human wisdom as I proclaimed to the gospel. He was nervous and concerned about how he went to you. I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may rest not on man's wisdom, but on God's power. I'll leave you to decide whether he was nervous about what he'd done in Athens and what he was now doing in Corinth. Perhaps it's much more to do, as I say, with a completely different culture. But did he change his mode of operation when he went to Corinth? Did he preach in a different way? Well, I think the answer must be, yes, he did. And he says here that he preached simply Jesus Christ and him crucified. And when he did it, he came in much weakness. Now, I think that's important to notice because we live in a culture, a pretty educated culture, very educated compared with Paul's day, which is a Gentile culture, not a Christian culture, not a Hebrew culture, but a secular culture by and large. And there is a a fear sometimes that we have that we find it difficult to compete with the philosophy of the day. And so we keep our mouths shut. We don't try and explain the gospel because, well, how can we talk about, you know, postmodernism and so on? Most of us don't even know what it means. But we know that that's how people live. And we don't know how to explain the gospel. Well, perhaps this tells us that Our basic ministry is speaking about Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you know nothing else and you do that, you are at no disadvantage because you don't understand the philosophy of the present age. You are not at a disadvantage. Any one of us can preach about Jesus and him crucified. You find something, and I'm sure you've found it too, that when you speak about the cross of Jesus, even a Gentile culture takes notice. 
when I was a teenager and in my 20s, I did a lot of open-air work, particularly in South End, where I lived. At least I lived just along the road from South End at Leoncee. And uh, we used to have a team that went down and did several times a week open-air work and took over the band stage. And it wasn't at all uncommon to have four or 500 people listening to what was taking place. And sometimes, you know, with, it was in the... I know this dates me, but it was in the days of the mods and rockers. Do you remember those days? If you're, uh, if you're under about 50, you probably won't know what we're talking about. But if you're older than that, you might know of the mods and rockers. You know, their motorbikes and their scooters and all the rest of it. I won't go into the background. But they were always fighting each other. And there were constant battles on South End seafronts, as there are in other places as well, between the mods and the rockers. And when I say fighting, they really were fighting. I mean, the rockers would take their bicycle chains and their motorbike chains as a weapon. And, uh, well, we won't go into the background of it all now because it takes too long. But w w sometimes you had these sort of disturbance in the crowd when you were preaching in the open air. But as soon as you start talking about the cross of Jesus, and what Jesus did on the cross, people will pay attention then and listen then when they won't listen at any other time. It's amazing how the preaching of the cross of Jesus makes an impact even upon Gentile secular people. That simply means that when we share the gospel, we ought not to keep our mouths closed. We ought to open our mouths. We ought to speak. You don't have to understand all these philosophical things. You can speak about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And there's power in that. In fact, this is what Paul hints at in these verses. I didn't come with persuasive words and of the philosophy of the age, he said, but I came and preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he goes on to say, this was a demonstration of the power of God. And I think that that's helpful, helpful to us. Can you tell somebody about Jesus, why he came, why he died, and what he did when he died, that God placed your sin and mine on the shoulders of Jesus as he died on that cross? He bore my sin in his body on the tree so that my sin may be dealt with and I can be put right with a holy God. You can explain that. I can explain that. We, of course, are thankful that there are people who can deal with the other big issues, People like John Lennox and Ravi Zacharias and so on who can debate in Oxford, Oxford Union and all the rest of it with these great philosophical people and so on. But, but we'd be lost, most of us, with trying to do that. But we can take our responsibility of preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's what Paul says. Our job is to share him, Jesus who died for us and took upon himself our sin. That's what Paul did at Corinth. I think it's, I, I'm glad about that. And you should be glad that you're at no disadvantage in a very philosophical, secular age. We can preach about Jesus. And perhaps that's what Jesus meant when he said, I, if I am lifted up, will draw all men to me. Rich and poor, Jews and Gentiles, educated and uneducated, philosophical or non-philosophical types. If I'm lifted up, I will draw people to myself. We used to have a member at Hillview, before Abby started, a member of the church there, 
He left school with no exams at all. He'd failed every exam, including things like 11 plus and so on, getting into school and so on. Failed them all. But after he left school, he studied and he passed, he, he got three doctorates um, by his studies, became one of the great senior scientists in the country. When he retired, he wanted a hobby and so he decided to take up astronomy and to help him with his astronomy, he got another doctorate in astronomy after he, after he retired. But when he was dying, not so long ago, I had the privilege, I've mentioned this to you before, he said he just wanted to be able to tell people, saved by grace. Very clever, very clever, erudite person, but wanted to tell people saved by grace. We're not at a disadvantage. Folks, we should open up, like Paul, open our mouths and preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now that's the background. Then let's look at the start of his ministry. The start of his ministry. I don't know why we suddenly got a capital T there, but it's... Not there on the original, I'm sure. But anyway, there we are. After Paul left Athens, he went to Corinth. We've read together already. And he begins a great day. Corinth, I didn't point all the details out to the children for obvious reasons, but it was an exceedingly wicked city, about the same size as Gloucester, which was a very big city for New, New Testament days. In the, temp- in the center was the temple for Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and fertility, amongst all the other religions were there. Some historians have suggested that every evening more than a thousand prostitutes flooded through the city from the various temples. Um, And of course there were thousands of people who were there temporarily, sailors who were waiting for their ships to be taken across the isthmus or they had unloading the cargo and all the rest of it. There were hundreds, probably thousands of people there and a highly, highly secular and immoral place developed. The goddess of fertility and sex and her temple there, Aphrodite there, uh, was there and it had a knock-on effect because one of the things that they used to do in that temple was you had to engage with the prostitutes there for relating to the gods. And so, of course, it developed to becoming a highly immoral place. Some talked about the sex acts becoming acts of worship themselves. And to call somebody a Corinthian meant you were calling them a highly immoral person. It became known around the world as a highly immoral person. Now, that was not uncommon in the first century. It's not uncommon in some places today. But the Apostle Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1. And he puts it like this. Well, he he paints it as a downward spiral in Romans chapter 1. And here's, here's the, uh, the di- downward spiral that he, he relates for you there. You needn't turn to it, but it's, it's there nonetheless. He says, first of all, it starts with ingratitude to God. Since what God has uh, been, may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, um, it goes on to speak about him, people being, not being thankful to God at all. And then as a result of that, they abandoned God, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And as a result of abandoning God, he goes on to speak about manufacturing their own gods. 
and coming up with their own gods and they started worshipping creatures and they started worshipping images that they had made, he says in Romans chapter 1. Then it led on to sexual impurity, immorality developed as a result of all of this going on. Then it led on to sexual deviation. As he puts it, men um, degrading their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of of God for a lie and they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is to be forever praised. In the same way, men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. And he talks about the sexual deviations there in Romans chapter 1. Then he speaks about all kinds of wickedness developing as a result of that. And then he goes on to finally say, he said, the worst thing about all this is they then started promoting all these things as if they were good things. Not just that they did them, but they promoted them as good. And what he goes on to say, although, the, although they, we know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of them, who, those who practice them. So there's this downward spiral in Romans chapter 1. And then beginning of Romans chapter 2, it says this, God's judgment is against those who do such things and it's based on the truth. So in all of this, this downward spiral, there is an abandoning of the truth. Now listen, Romans chapter 1, as the book of Romans, was written from Corinth. Can you imagine Paul wandering around Corinth and looking around and seeing the corruption and so on? And that's why he was able to write as he did, because he could see all this happening. All of these, this downward spiral, he could see it developing and growing in action all the time, this downward spiral. So the start of the church was seeing all this taking place. Romans chapter 1 that he wrote from Corinth, actually on the, the next, next time he visited Corinth, but was written from Corinth nonetheless, it's a very dark chapter. If you look at the end of Romans chapter 16, the last part of Romans, he mentions some of the Corinthian people. Gaius, almost certainly the Titius Justus that Heather read about in Acts chapter 18. Well, he, he is the same person. Erastus is mentioned. He's from Corinth. Phoebe is from just down the road at the, the town that adjoined Corinth. Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned there. All people from Corinth. He mentions them in the letter to the Romans. So here's Paul in Corinth, surrounded by this perversity, sickness that comes from it and so on, and he writes Romans chapter 1. And he sets the scene in Romans chapter 1 for the subsequent chapters, chapters 2 to 8, which talk about the grace of God and what God did for us in Jesus. Then the rest of the book of Romans about how you put that into practice. So Paul arrived in Corinth. And when he was there, he met Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla were a couple who had left Rome. They were kicked out of Rome by Claudius because Claudius exiled all Jews from Rome in AD 49. And he became, Claudius became very anti-Semitic. It's a background to that, but we won't go into it. But they obviously came to Corinth and they, having fled Rome, and they set up their business in Corinth. Their business was tent-making. 
And that happened to be Paul's trade. Now, every rabbi was required to have a trade. They didn't just study the scriptures and then go out and start preaching them, but they had to have a trade, and Paul's trade was tent making. And uh, it was more akin to saddlery than tents today, because it was often leather and skins that the tents were made of. So it wasn't just canvas that it, that would be included and cotton was included, but it was more to do with leather work and so on. And Paul's and Aquila and Priscilla's job was tent making. And so Paul got a job with them. And you can imagine Paul sitting there cross-legged on the floor, sewing tents, this leather work, sewing tents with Aquila and Priscilla. And while they sewed, he sewed. While they S-E-W-E-D, he S-O-W-E-D, the gospel. He shared the gospel with them as he sat there with them. And it just reminds us, by the way, that where we work, the people we meet every day is our primary mission field. We pray for Deer Barker, we pray for Africa, and we pray for all sorts of parts of the world and so on, and rightly so, and we send money and we support them and sometimes visit them, have them visit us. But our primary mission field is always where we work, where we come into contact with people, our family and those close to us. Paul obviously shared with Aquila and Priscilla as they were sewing tents to get together. God has a purpose for you where you are. You may wish you were somewhere else, but God has a purpose for you where you are. And when Paul wrote Corinth later, he said that he owed no man anything because he'd worked with his hands to provide for his own needs. He wasn't scrounging off the generosity of other people. He says, I'm indebted to no man. In fact, the rabbis used to say that, um, that the, the reason that the rabbis were required to have a trade was because every body, every father, a Jewish father who did not teach his son a trade was teaching him to be a robber. One of the things the rabbis said. And uh, therefore even the rabbis had to have a trade. So that's the start of his ministry. But there comes a change in the middle of his ministry. And the change in the middle of his ministry um, was when Timothy and Silas came from Philippi where he'd left them where they'd been for a while. And uh, it's mentioned in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, that they brought with them a financial gift. In fact, there's not only that, it, it, there's, there's a very inter interesting passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 8, it says this. He's writing to the Corinthians, he says, I robbed other churches by receiving support, support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you, that is you Corinthians, in any way, and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I don't love you, God knows I do, and I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want to take the opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. In other words, he says, I was not taking money from you Corinthians when I came to you, 
I was supported first of all by my own hands with Aquila and Priscilla tent making and then later when Silas and um, Timothy and Silas came they brought a gift and that enabled me to carry on the preaching of the gospel. When he wrote to the Philippians he said not that I really needed it but I took the money that was given so that you may have part in the fruit of my ministry he says to the Philippians. When we give to missions here at Abbey, it's not, an ex- it's not an expense. You know, an expense is something you pay and it's a loss to you because you have to ex- expend the money. You ex- it's an expense. You pay the money. But giving to missionaries is not an expense. It's an investment. In other words, there's going to be fruit from it. There's going to be a return on the money that is given, the effort that is given. You will receive interest on any investment you make in giving. That's what Paul is arguing with them. It's a really good investment. Let me give you a little illustration from the Old Testament. You can find it in uh, 1 Samuel 30, which is page 302 in the Bible, but don't look it up now. It's an illustration of this. David and the children of Israel were being attacked by their various enemies around them. And uh, David then decided to take a good portion of the people, and particularly the army, the soldiers, and go and attack the Philistines who kept attacking them. And they chased the Philistines. And consequently, they left behind the city almost undefended, a place called Ziklag. And while he was away fighting the Philistines, the Amalekites, one of the other enemies, attacked Ziklag and carried off all their possessions and treasure and carried off their wives, no doubt to marry them off to other people, as we hear about even today. And eventually when Paul returned, it says that he found what had happened, and it says in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, David was very distressed and he wept till he had no strength left. They were broken hearted. And all this had been taken, his wives and everything else had been taken. And everybody was down on David. Why did you take us off to fight the Philistines? Look what happened now. And, and blamed David for it all. And so David shared it with the Lord. He felt absolutely alone, David did. But it says, David found strength in the Lord his God. And he asked God, what shall I do? And eventually he decided that he would take 600 men and go and find the Amalekites who'd taken his wives and treasure. And uh, so he took them, these 600 soldiers with him. And they reached the Bazar Ravine, as it's called. Because they'd been fighting for so long and it's a long journey and so on, 200 of those 600 soldiers were too exhausted to go on any further. And they decided to stay in the, in, in the city. They would not move from that city. They were absolutely exhausted. So the 400 went on. And they, on the way, they met an Egyptian slave of the Amalekites. And from her, they found out, um, uh, they found out what, what had happened and where, they could, where the Amalekites were. Without going into the whole story, David found the Amalekites and he slaughtered them, chased them off and recovered all the wives and all the children and the property and the plunder the Amalekites had taken. Then they returned and they came back to the ravine where they'd left the 200. 
who were too exhausted to go on. And some of David's men then said, look, don't give them any of the plunder. They didn't fight. They backed out. They just seen sitting here. And David said, no, that's not right. They stayed behind. Well, if you remember the old authorized version, it says, stayed by the stuff, is what it says. They stayed behind and they looked after the property that was there. And they guarded it. They just stayed with it. Looked after everything. And David said, because of that, they deserve as much, uh, much of the treasure as those of us who've gone to do the fighting. We will all share alike, he said. And they did, he distributed equally. Now that support in the ministry that we give to missionaries, our prayers, our giving, that support that we give means that we have a part in their ministry. It's not that we give them to do the ministry and we're here. Our praying, our giving is our ministry. Together, we will all share from that investment. That's why we invest the money and so on. I wonder if you're interested in getting to heaven. Well, one day we shall find, the scripture says, treasure laid up in heaven. And that treasure will be what has been invested. And what we keep to see, keep for ourselves here and now will be lost. What we have given has gone on ahead and we'll meet it. So the Philippians sent this gift and that enabled Paul to give up the saddle making and the tent making and so on. Um, and both the people who gave the money and the ministry of Paul himself will both be rewarded because that enabled Paul then to get in full time into preaching the gospel. We're not told exactly the details, but uh, he testified, we're told, of Jesus, the Messiah. And read that in verse 5. The Holy Spirit tempted, pushed them to do that. So he, he, he pursued now in preaching the gospel in a full-time capacity, preaching the Messiah. And as a result, the Jews became very abusive. They didn't like it at all. Literally, it says they blasphemed. So Paul says, because he was preaching in the synagogue, Paul says... All right, if you won't listen, you won't have anything, and we'll go, we'll leave you. And he shook off the dust from his feet, as they say, and he went somewhere else. We'll go from now on to the Gentiles. Your blood be upon your own head. We're going to the Gentiles, if you won't listen to us. I fulfilled my responsibility for now. It's the Gentiles. By the way, just let me pause a second. The Jews used to talk about the Gentiles as dogs. They hated the Gentiles. The rabbis taught that the only reason God made Gentiles was to provide fuel for hell. So imagine what they thought when Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles. <laughs> Can you imagine it? They must have been shocked. Think this is the last straw. No wonder we shouldn't have listened to him. He's going to the Gentiles, etc., etc. But you know, it's all part of God's plan. God hardened the Gentiles so that the people of God can hear, and he's hardened the people of God so that the Gentiles can hear. And it's all part of God's plan, which you can read about later in middle of Romans, if you'd like to, sometime. And he went, of all places, next door to the Gentiles. Next door to the synagogue. So every time they were going to the synagogue, they'd see Paul going in next door for the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. And when the Jews see the Gentiles singing and rejoicing and being blessed and encouraging one another and free, they begin to get jealous. I rather like that. I want some of that. Why don't we have that in our synagogue? Well, you haven't got the gospel, that's why. But Paul was preaching right next door. 
And the man named Titius Justus that we've read about in Acts 18, verse 7, also is known as Gaius in the Bible, he turns up later, um, he was one of those who was converted. And there were these Jews going to the synagogue and seeing all this happening, songs and singing and growing in numbers and lives being changed. No wonder Paul speaks about provoking the Jews to jealousy. They became jealous. We want what those Gentiles have got. Well, if you're going to have that, you're going to have to have the gospel. By the way, today, don't you think the world will be far more excited if they see what God is doing amongst the church of Jesus Christ? They will become envious. They will become jealous. We want some of that. But they couldn't have helped, helped noticing it because one of those converted was Crispus. Crispus was the leader of the synagogue. He was one of those converted. And we read about it in verse 8. Do you ever think God has a sense of humor? I think he probably does. And many were baptized and became believers, we're told, right next door to the synagogue where he was kicked, uh, Paul was kicked out. Now, if you were Paul, what would you feel like in all of that? The synagogue people being converted, the leader of the synagogue being converted, many baptized, we're told, and becoming believers. Well, the surprising thing is that the pressure of Paul, uh, upon Paul had got to Paul. I think if it had been me, I'd have been probably very excited. Look at what God's doing. It's great. But was Paul's attitude that? No, it wasn't. Paul's attitude was he became fearful and depressed. He was full of fear. And as a result, God had to come to Paul and speak to him in verse 9. It says he came to Paul and said, Paul, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, I wonder if Paul felt afraid because he remembered the rest of his previous journey. He remembered going to Lystra where they threw stones and rocks at him and left him for dead. He remembered Philippi where they threw him in prison. He remembered Thessalonica where, this, where a riot was started and he had to escape at night. And he thought, oh no, not again. Yeah, people are being converted, but I'm in for it now. And perhaps he was fearful because of all of that. But God said to him in that vision that he had, that dream that he had, Paul, don't worry, keep on preaching. You're doing the right thing. He says in verse 10, no one is going to attack you to harm you. In Lystra, they stoned him and left him for dead. Perhaps that's the incident that Paul is speaking about when he speaks about he was taken up into heaven. Probably was. In Acts 16, they were, God was with them in the prison. He didn't save them from prison, he saved them in prison. Uh, but God was with them. No wonder James says, count it all joy when you meet various trials. So here's Paul in trouble again, and no wonder he's depressed, no wonder he's fearful. He's thinking to himself, is it going to happen all again? But then God says, it's all right, no one will harm you. He must have heaved a sigh of relief. And as a result, he stayed a year and a half. <laughs> he decided, well, I won't move on from here. I'm not gonna, nobody's going to harm me here. I'm going to stay a bit longer. And he preached the gospel. And being an important city, it became a, a center for sending out the gospel. He said, a year and a half preaching the word of God, verse 11 says. And his reason was, everywhere I go, I'm attacked. It's so painful. But the Lord says, I'm not going to be attacked here. So I'll stay and preach the gospel here, which is what he did. And he taught them the word of God. Then finally, there's the fruit of Paul's ministry. The Jews were so hopping mad that they took Paul to Gallio. 
the procurator. Gallio was the brother of Seneca, who was the tutor to Pharaoh Nero. So he was one of the central characters. He was right at the center of Rome, as it were. But when they hold Paul before the authorities, and particularly before Gallio, Paul, who used words very well and could speak very well, he was about to speak in verse 14 when Gallio says, stop it, stop it, stop it. I don't want to know. This has got nothing to do with me. This is all about Jewish words and laws and so on. He said, this has nothing to do with the Roman law and so on. And get out of my sight. Take, take these people out. And on the way out, they took by force the man, one of their own number, it says Sosthenes, and they beat him up in front of Gallio, hoping that Gallio would then change his mind and listen to them. But Gallio took no notice at all, the last verse we had in our scripture reading, took no notice at all. But who was, who was Sosthenes? He was the ruler of the synagogue. Sosthenes, who doubtless took over from Crispus, who'd been the ruler of the synagogue when he was converted, Sosthenes, he then became the ruler of the synagogue and now he was converted too. Here's the picture then. Paul in the synagogue left and went next door. Crispus was converted. How, how the Jews must have hated that. Then there was more opposition. Then Sosthenes, the second ruler of the synagogue, he was converted too. And you say, well, how do you know Sosthenes was converted? Well, it doesn't say it in this passage, but he went on to Ephesus. And by the way, and if you read the beginning of his letter to the Corinthians later on, he speaks about the letter coming from him and from Sosthenes. Obviously had become a Christian. He called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, he refers to. So here's Paul traveling in the gospel. Isn't God great? Doesn't he do things in a marvelous way? Paul doubtless went to Corinth because it was the logical place to go. It's the important city, the supremely important place. He did the right thing. But through it all, God enabled him to do what uh, he wouldn't otherwise have been able to do. He was able to help them and through them to help so many others. And Romans chapter 1 was developed perhaps part because of his thinking that came while he was there in, in uh, Corinth itself. We go on with the story next time. Thank you.